Thank you so much for joining us for Ankeny Gospel Church Podcast. On this podcast, you can find sermons, classes, and other resources that continue to invite us into the mission of Jesus and the journey of faith. We hope this is a blessing to you, and if we can help you in any way, feel free to reach out. Good morning. I'm Corbin, and uh, our reading today is Matthew 12, 1 through 21. At that time, Jesus passed through the green fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pick and eat some heads of grain. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, See, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Well, haven't you read what David did when he and those who were with him were hungry? How he entered the house of God and they ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for him or for those with him to eat, but only for the priests. Or haven't you read in the law that on Sabbath days the priests in the temple violate the Sabbath and are innocent? I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. If you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. Moving on from there, he entered their synagogue. There he saw a man who had a shriveled hand, and in order to accuse him, they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? He replied to them, Who among you, if he had a sheep that fell into a pit on the Sabbath, wouldn't take hold of it and lift it out? A person is worth far more than a sheep, so it is lawful to do what is good on the Sabbath. Then he told the man, Stretch out your hand. And so he stretched it out, and it was restored, as good as the other. But the Pharisees went out and plotted against him how they might kill him. Jesus was aware of this and withdrew. Large crowds followed him, and he healed them all. He warned them not to make him known so that what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Here is my servant, whom I have chosen. My beloved in whom I delight, I will put my spirit on him, and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not argue or shout, and no one will hear his voice in the streets. He will not break a bruised reed, and he will not put out a smoldering wick until he has led justice to victory. The nations will put their hope in his name. This is the reading of the word. Thanks be to God. You guys can go ahead and take a seat. <clears throat> Thank you, Corbin and Tori and Pete and Jeannie for leading us in worship through Scripture and through song and through song that is Scripture. I invite you to take your copy of the Scriptures and turn to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12. And um, while you're doing that, I would like to just continue this posture of worship by praying to our Father together. Our Father, in the quiet, you are there. And in the stillness, you are there. Father, you are the Lord of creation. 
You are the God who redeems. And you are the God who right now is calling to us with your still small voice. Father, you look at us in love and you invite us to enter into your love. So Holy Spirit, right now I ask that whatever whatever we have brought here in our minds, in our bodies, in our hearts, whatever anxious thoughts, whatever sleepless nights, whatever pain that we have experienced this last week, Father, we lay it down at your feet. We throw it out at your feet. And we cast all of our anxieties on you because, Lord, we know that you care for us. So this morning, Holy Spirit, I ask that you would teach, you would prod, you would open our eyes, and you would take our burdens from us and give us the easy yoke and the light burden that you promise. We pray all of these things in your son's name and by the power of the Holy Spirit, amen. In 1992, uh, this man named AJ was 10 years old. So he was a little, little boy and he grew up in uh, Oregon. I mean, his family lived in Oregon, and one day he was walking home from school. AJ was walking home from school, and he was excited this day because this day in particular, he knew his grandparents were going to be in town. While he was at school, his grandparents had finished the trip, and they were going to be in town. He was going to see his grandma and grandpa, and it was going to be great. So he's walking home from school. He's really excited to see his grandma and grandpa. He gets home, and he walks into the dining room, and his, his mom, his dad, his grandma, and his grandpa are all standing around the table, the kitchen table, and their faces are glowing, just like radiant. Their eyes are wide and they have the biggest smiles on their faces. They're just like they can't get more excited. And AJ is like, what's going on? Is it me? Is it because I'm home here today? And then his, he asked his grandpa what's going on and it looked, it, they were looking at something on the table. And his grandpa explained to them, he's like, well we drove up last night. They lived really far south in like California, like Southern California. So they had a long drive. So they were driving up, and as they do, they drove halfway, stayed the night in a hotel, and then drove the other half the next morning. And so they were driving, and along the California-Oregon border somewhere, they stopped at a gas station, grabbed some gas, grabbed some snacks, and as he often did, he grabbed a, a lottery ticket, put it in his pocket. They go to a hotel that night. It's late at night. The grandpa can't sleep, so he's watching the news. Then the lottery numbers start coming on, and he's like, oh, yeah, I forgot. So he grabbed the lottery ticket, and this has happened a hundred times for him. And sure enough, the little ping pong balls, I don't know what they are, they're floating around and the first number matches. He's like, oh, okay, six more to go. Second number matches. Third number matches. At this time, he's getting a little excited, but kind of suspicious because you don't want to get too excited. And so he wakes up the grandma and he's like, hey, we're three out of seven so far. Fourth number matches. Fifth number matches. They're at the edge of the bed now. They can't believe their eyes. Sixth number matches. Seventh number matches. All seven numbers matched. They announced the winnings that night, and then it was $4.6 million, which I plugged that into um, 
the inflation calculator in Google. I don't know how accurate this is, so don't quote me on this. And $4.6 million in 1992 would be about $10 million today. They couldn't believe their eyes, their ears, their jaws dropped. They couldn't sleep that night, so they finished the drive home. And while AJ was at school, they told AJ's mom and, and dad and all this stuff. And uh, they were just absolutely elated. Years later, AJ's writing about this event, right? So he's writing this book and he's writing this event. And he says this, after a sleepless night, they, grandma and grandpa, they drove to our home and they placed the lottery ticket on our dining room table. The winnings helped our family in profound ways. Debts were paid. Vacations were had. Tuitions were covered in full. But this story also has a dark side. A profound gift that created momentary bliss eventually led to bickering infighting and anger in the family. After nearly 50 years of marriage, grandma and grandpa's marriage ended in a divorce. Family members stopped talking and a cold bitterness took over. I don't retell this difficult story to shame a single soul. By the grace of God, healing and reconciliation has begun in our family. Yet, writes AJ, the fact remains, no one knew how to steward such a gift. This cautionary tale illustrates an important lesson. More critical than a gift is how we handle a gift. This is AJ writing 20 or 30 years after the event happened. More critical than a gift is how we handle the gift. The gift of money in this case, which was amazing. It actually ended up leading to bitterness, divorce, betrayal, and a lack of trust because it wasn't handled and stewarded properly. We know this in other areas of our lives as well, too, right? The gift of marriage, an amazing gift, but if not handled well, can lead to an escapist coping mechanisms, pent-up bitterness and frustration, and settling for a low-grade companionship instead of the deep intimacy that it's created for. The gift of children, an amazing, beautiful gift, if not handled well, can lead to trauma, overbearing parents, emotional heartbreak that takes years to undo, broken relationships, and more. The gift of grace, the grace of God, if not handled well, can and does in the pages of scripture lead to hypocrisy, a holier-than-thou mentality, and a stuck-up group of people who think they're better than everybody else and who willingly and excitedly pick up the first stone. The gift of freedom, freedom in Christ, freedom from sin and from, 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 from chains and from bondage, if not handled well, can and do, does lead us to use freedom as a weapon. And Paul actually writes about this in Galatians 5, using it as an excuse to do what pleases our sinful selves. Or what about the gift of Sabbath? Yes, the gift of Sabbath, if not handled well, can and does lead to a heavy burden of legalism, a hard yoke of works righteousness and endless debates and arguments within churches. The point is, is that more critical than a gift is how we handle the gift. And we see this firsthand in our text for today. Our text today is a poor stewardship of God's gift. It's two examples of Pharisees who are unable to receive the gift of God and his easy yoke and his light burden, but instead squander it with rules and regulations. More critical than the gift is how we handle the gift. And so our text for today, it actually lays out perfectly in three different sections. There are two controversy stories between Jesus and the Pharisees over the Sabbath. Over the Sabbath. The first one is from verses one through eight. 
That's where Jesus, his disciples are picking grains of Sabbath and the Pharisees get mad at that. The second controversy story is verses nine to 14 and it's when Jesus heals the withered, the withered hand of the man on the Sabbath. And then the third section is verses 15 to 21, which is kind of a summary of Jesus' ministry up until this point, which is a direct quote from Isaiah 42, which we won't have a ton of time to get to that today, but I really highly encourage you to go back this week, read Isaiah 42, read Matthew 12, and look at what uh, Matthew is doing in this. So today we're gonna really focus on the two Sabbath controversies. And if you remember from last week, Jesus did an excellent, or Jesus, he, he also did an excellent job. Nate did an excellent job preaching on Jesus when he said, uh, uh, he talked about the easy yoke and the light burden. So before we get to these Sabbath controversies, um, I, I wanna remind us of the text from last week because it just, it flows, it flows perfectly into the text for this week. So look at this. This is Jesus speaking at the end of Matthew in verses 28, 29, and 30. Come to me, Jesus says, all of you who are weary and all of you who are burdened, and I will give you rest. Take up, carry my yoke, and learn from me, because I am lowly, and I am humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Did you guys hear that? Jesus is inviting you to receive his gift of rest. Right there. Come to me if you're weary and you're burdened. You don't have to look very far to find a weary and a burdened person. Come to me and I will give you rest. He is inviting you to receive his gift, the gift of rest, the gift of an easy yoke, the gift of a light burden. And immediately after Jesus says that, Matthew puts two stories right after it of Pharisees and the Sabbath. Well, what's the Sabbath intended to give us? Rest. And what did the Pharisees make it? A hard yoke and a heavy burden. These stories illustrate how easily we can take the good gift of rest, the good gift of Sabbath, and turn it into debates and rules and a hard yoke and a heavy burden. At the time, when Jesus was walking around in first century Palestine and Galilee, you could say the word Sabbath and everybody knew what it was. You said the word Sabbath, everybody knew what it was. You didn't have to uh, uh, explain its significance, you didn't have to define it, you didn't have to defend it, you didn't have to show the importance of it in the life of the individual and the life of the community. You didn't have to show how Sabbath, uh, how life-changing Sabbath really is because for the people of God, for thousands of years, Sabbath was just a part of their identity. It was just who they were from the seventh day of creation and every seven days after that, the people of God have been observing Sabbath, remembering it, and celebrating it. And as the Jewish phrase goes, anymore, Jews don't keep the Sabbath, the Sabbath keeps the Jews. So in Jesus' day, you didn't need to explain Sabbath. You could just say that word and everybody knew what it was. We don't have that same luxury today. We do not have that same luxury. Today, Sabbath is a word with a lot of suitcases, as I like to say, or a word with a lot of baggage. It's a word with a lot of baggage. Sabbath brings up a lot of uh, experiences. Maybe you hear that word and you just think of like if you were a little kid and you know, you just were told rules what not to do on Sunday, like don't run in church. That was always the one that got me. I'm like, you're gonna put a gym in our church and you're gonna tell me not to run? Like this is, this is ridiculous, right? So some of you might bring up experiences of like rules and kind of boring and you just twiddle your thumb. Some of you it brings experiences of like everything was closed on Sundays and it's like, okay, well, is that Sabbath? 
Some of you, maybe you had a Jewish friend, you had a Catholic friend, you had something where it was more uh, observed. Some of you maybe don't have any experiences with Sabbath. You just never heard of it. And that, that's okay. Sabbath also is a word that brings with it a lot of arguments. A lot of arguments. And we should not be surprised by this because there have been arguments over the Sabbath for over 2,000 years, as we see in Jesus' day as well. Sabbath is a word that brings confusion. I remember the first time I was like, somebody was explaining it to me. I literally said, you mean like the band with Ozzy Osbourne, Black Sabbath? <laughs> and uh, the guy didn't know the band, and so I was like, oh yeah, media there, what? Um, so it brings a lot of confusion, like what does it mean? Is it Saturday, is it sundown to sundown? Is it Sunday, is it just church? Is it just a state of being, like for your mind and your soul? Like what, what is it? And to sum it all up, Sabbath brings with it a lot of emotions, a lot of emotions. And I would love for us to just be honest with those and, and name those. For some of you, right now, you're hearing me talk about Sabbath and you're reading this passage and you're excited. You're like, oh, cool, this is, I'm excited for this. Like, I, I don't really know this that well. I wanna get a good, like, biblical theology of what the Sabbath is and you're excited. Maybe for some of you, you're, you're hearing me talk about Sabbath right now and you're hearing this and you're like, oh, you're a little nervous. There's a little, like, fear a little bit, like a low-grade fear of like, oh no, is this, is this getting like towards legalism? Is this going down a path of, of works righteousness? Is this, is this some weird self-help thing that's just cloaked in spiritual language? And that's real, and that's okay. And maybe for some of you, you hear the word Sabbath and you're hearing me talk right now and you're, there's no emotions. You're just like, okay, cool. Wh wherever you are, wherever you are, I just want to remind us of one thing that wherever you're coming from, it's okay, it's welcomed, and we are first and foremost a family following Jesus into new creation, period. As we seek his presence, as we're formed into his image, and as we live on mission for the renewal of our lives, of our communities, and of the communities we live in. So if you're super excited about Sabbath, if you're super nervous about Sabbath, or if you're super indifferent about Sabbath, great, we're all here. Let's look, the goal of today is to look at God's heart for us in Sabbath. We don't have the luxury of Jesus' day to know what Sabbath was. And so it was clearly, clearly important to Jesus. Jesus himself said, I am Lord of the Sabbath. He's in charge of it. He is the master of it. And it was clearly important to the first century Jewish people, both Pharisees and non-Pharisees alike. And it's also clearly unimportant for 21st century American evangelicals. So what we're gonna do today is we're gonna look at God's heart for us in the Sabbath. We're gonna take a journey from the first pages of scripture to the last. So yes, it's one of those days today. So buckle up, here we go. We're gonna take a journey from Genesis all the way to Revelation and look at God's heart for us because it is a gift. And so the, this, the goal of this sermon today is not primarily an argument to convince you of, of Sabbath, although I do, I do hope that this helps. This is also not a how-to of Sabbath. Like, well, what is it? Are you, you're, like, give me the practical tools. This is not that. So don't expect that because this is not that. That's what small groups are for. Small groups exist to practice together. So, we're gonna look at God's heart for us in the Sabbath. You guys ready? Great. We're gonna look at God's heart for us in the Sabbath in five chapters, five chapters. The first chapter is chapter one, creation. So, if you want to turn with me to all these passages of scripture, you can. If not, they're also gonna be on the screen. Look with me at Genesis chapter one and two. The word Sabbath is uh, the Hebrew word Shabbat, and it just means to rest 
to cease or to stop. So it's actually not like a proper noun, it's just a, a verb, and it just means to rest, to cease, or to stop. So you're doing something, and then you Sabbathed, or you Shabbat. You Shabbated, you stopped completely. And the first time we see Sabbath is in the creation narrative. In Genesis 1 and 2, we are introduced to a God who creates, a God who redeems, a God who brings light into darkness, order out of chaos, and life out of death. And each day, there's this cadence. God sees that it was good. God sees that it was good. God sees that it was good. Days 1 and 3, he makes like the environments. Days four through six, he makes like the things that populate those environments, so the birds and the sky, the fish and the sea, the animals and land. And day six, the pinnacle of his creation is humanity. God made humanity in his own image, in the image of God and the likeness of him. And then he tells them, he gives them this divine uh, uh, command, and it's, and it's be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it. Translation, go for it. Here is creation. I have, I have lovingly, selflessly created you, brought order out of chaos, life and death. I want you guys to partner with me as we, as we create, as we enjoy life and its goodness, right? Creation is very good. It's good, it's good, it's good. And at the end of the sixth day, it says that it is very good. So there's morning, there's evening. And then look with me at uh, chapter one, verse 31. Um, this is not gonna be on the screen, so I apologize. But chapter one, verse 31 of Genesis says this, God saw all that he had made. So this is like him backing up at the end of the sixth day and he's seen everything. And it was very good indeed. Evening came and then morning came the sixth day. I I was thinking about this. If you're Adam and Eve, when were Adam and Eve made? Adam and Eve were made on the sixth day. Then they're given this command. Hey, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it. And then the first thing that they do is what? Go to sleep. There was evening and then there was morning. In the Jewish uh, imagination, the day started at sunset. So the first thing you do every single day is you fall asleep for eight hours, or 10 hours back then probably, or 11. Scholars debate that stuff, which doesn't matter, but whatever. You go to sleep for a long time. So the first thing you do to start the day is you go to sleep. Adam and Eve are created. They're, God says, go for it, fill the, and they're like, okay, when do we start? And he's like, oh, by the way, go to sleep first. Interesting. Did they do anything to deserve that rest? No. Did they work their way so that they could rest now? And then what, what happens the day, the first day that they wake up? Look with me at Genesis 2, verse 1. So the heavens and the earth and everything in them were completed. On the seventh day, God rested. I'm sorry. On the seventh day, God had completed his work that he had done, and he rested. That word there is Shabbat or Sabbath. He Sabbathed on the seventh day from all of his work that he had done. He did not rest from part of his work that he had done. He did not rest from a, the majority of it, but he really wanted to make sure that Adam and Eve knew what their rules were, and so he spent the seventh day writing a manual and like giving them more and more instruction. No, he rested from, he Sabbathed from all of the work that he had done. And then verse three, God blessed the seventh day and he declared it holy. For on it he Sabbathed from all all of his work of creation. There are three things that God blesses in creation. God blesses the animals, and he says, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. God blesses the humans, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Subdue it and like go for it. God blesses a day. He blesses a day, like a specific day. Interesting. God doesn't just bless it, he declares it holy. Holy, what does holy mean? It means set apart. It is different from all the other days. For six days you will labor and you do all your work, that's what God did, and on the seventh day, God rested. Did God need to rest? No, absolutely God did not need to rest. But did God rest? 
Yes. Did God stop? Yes. So you're Adam and Eve. You wake up to life, and God is looking at you. And he says, hey, look at this garden and all of this life and everything I've given you. This is what I want from you. And so they're like, okay, cool. I mean, that's what I would do, although I'm not them, but I would do that. I'd be like, okay, cool, when are we gonna get started? And he says, all right, go to sleep. So they go to sleep. They wake up the next day, and then God's like, yeah, we're not gonna do that today either. We're just gonna rest. We're gonna stop. We're gonna enjoy. Do you see God's heart in this? Did they do anything to deserve this? No. Is God making this like a, a rule, like you have to do this and like blah, blah, blah? No, what do they get to do? They just get to enjoy God. They get to enjoy each other. They get to enjoy God's good creation. Chapter one is creation. God rested. He didn't need to rest. God's heart for us in Sabbath goes all the way back to creation when he set a day aside. He blessed it. He called it holy. He gave it to humanity to enjoy his own work of creation. Chapter two law. Turn with me to Exodus 20. Exodus chapter 20, the most significant event in the memory and social imaginary of the Israelite is the Exodus. The Exodus, when Israel was enslaved for upwards of 400 years under Egypt, and then God delivers them by his mighty works and his outstretched arm through Moses, the 10 plagues, all this stuff. They go there, they're at the Red Sea, they're trapped by the Red Sea, there's fire behind them, and Pharaoh, you guys have seen the movie, right, Prince of Egypt, and there's fire behind them, and then, or isn't there a new one too, Exodus, I don't know, whatever, and there's fire behind them, and Pharaoh stops, and then they go through the Red Sea, and then the, the, the Lord um, um, drowns all of the Egyptians in the bottom of the Red Sea. I mean, this, this event and captured the Israelite imagination because they defined God by this. We define God by this, that he is a God who redeems. He is a God who redeems. You look at all the pages of scripture and they always are talking about the Exodus and they're talking about a new Exodus when we'd be redeemed from slavery to sin. But I'm getting ahead of myself. So they get out of the Red Sea and immediately they go to the foot of this mountain called Mount Sinai. And there God gives them kind of the, the I like the term terms and conditions. So like God sets aside these, this, this new nation, the Israelite people, and the law is like the terms and conditions of the covenant, of the promise between the two. Like God says, you can expect this of me, I can expect this of you, can we agree on this? And they're like, yeah, sure. They don't, obviously. But they're like, yeah, sure. And he starts it with what we know as the 10 commandments, or the 10 words. And I'm just gonna read them off real quick. You guys probably know them. Do not have any other gods before me. Do not make an idol for yourself in the form of anything, like a bird or a, a whatever. Do not, uh, three, do not misuse or take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Number four, remember the Sabbath. We'll come back to that. Number five, honor your father and your mother and all the parents said. (laughs) Number six, do not murder. Number seven, do not commit adultery. Number eight, do not steal. Number nine, do not give false testimony. Number 10, do not covet. Did you catch that? One of the 10 commandments is about the Sabbath. That's, that's pretty significant. If, if I were to break any one of these 10 commandments, I'd, I would hopefully get fired from my job. I would definitely get fired from my job. But if I were to break the fourth commandment, I'd probably get a pat on the back. Sabbath is one of the only, Walter Brueggemann says this, Sabbath is one of the only of the 10 commandments that we regularly boast about breaking. But it doesn't just say remember the Sabbath. Look at the text on the screen with me. It says Exodus 20, verse eight through 11, which again is the longest of the 10 commandments. It says this, remember the Sabbath day 
To keep it holy. Ah, I forgot to underline Sabbath. Remember the Sabbath day. That first Sabbath should be underlined. To keep it holy. You are to labor six days uh, and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath, a rest, a stop, a cease. To the Lord your God, you must not do any work. You, your son, or your daughter, or your male or your female servant, or your animals, or the immigrant who is within your city gates. Resident alien just means immigrant within your city gates. So Sabbath is not just like a glorified day off for you to just like, you know, get your nails done and, and get pampered up. It's, it's for everybody. It's for your son, for your daughter, for your male your f- servants, your female servants, your livestock. The, I mean, the animals. The resident alien who's in your city gates. For the Lord, wh- why should we follow this command? Why should we remember the Sabbath? For the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and everything in them in six days. And then he Sabbathed, he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and declared it holy. This is one of the only Ten Commandments that gives us a reason for why to follow it. There's no justification for not murdering. That's pretty self-explanatory. But the Lord here says, remember. Why do you think he says remember? Because we so easily forget. You're an ancient Israelite. You have been enslaved to Egypt for your entire life, your parents' entire lives, their, their parents' entire lives, et cetera, et cetera, for generations. And what was, the, what was the burden of the Israelites in Egypt? There was too much work to be done and not enough time to do it and not enough resources to do it, right? Pharaoh increased their labor. He didn't let them get as many resources, so then they had to go actually get their own resources and then make whatever they were making and all this stuff. So... So the empire of the time told them they have to do more, 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 more. Told them they don't have enough time to do it and then didn't give them enough resources to do it. Every single day you're waking up and you're just, you're just going to work. You have to work to survive. You have to work to get more, to give them more. And then you go to sleep. And then you wake up and it's that over and over and over again for your entire lives. Can you imagine Can you imagine the breath of fresh air when God says, hey, we don't do that in my kingdom. We don't serve the empires of more, of never being able to finish a job that you start. We don't serve that. We take one day a week and we stop and we enjoy. In Deuteronomy 5, the other time the Ten Commandments are written, It says, observe the Sabbath, and then the reason it gives is because you were slaves in Egypt, but now you are free because the Lord redeemed you. Do you see God's heart in this? This is not a, I don't want you to have fun. This is not a, I don't care about your work. This is a gift that God gives that's the easiest to forget because we can just excuse it, the the Israelites just excuse it away. Also in the law, not only was it a, a rhythm of seven, every seven days you take a day off, but every seven years you took a day off, No, you took a year off, sorry. Every seven years, you took an entire year off. So the seventh year was called a Sabbath year. So you farm for six years and then you let the earth rest on the seventh year. And you don't work for an entire year. This is, God God gave this. Every seven times seven years, so every 49 years, in case you don't do the math, plus one, so 50, uh, is, is called the year of Jubilee. So every seven days you stop. Every seven years you stop for a year. And every seven times seven years is called the year of Jubilee. And in the year of Jubilee, everybody look forward to this. In the year of Jubilee, all debts were paid, gone. Actually, they were, abo- they were uh, absolved. They weren't even paid. They were just gone. All land, or sorry, all slaves were freed. 
all slaves are freed. And all land that you, whoever the original owner of the land was, was given back to them. So in this time, you were, you were constantly worried about the taxes and all this stuff, and it would get so heavy that you wouldn't be able to pay for your own land, so somebody would buy it, and then you would end up working for somebody else, but on your own land. And the year of Jubilee, it was just clean slate. I was telling that uh, one time about a year and a half ago, and there was this guy, and he was like, why don't we still do that? That sounds amazing. No debts, no like, like work every, every seven years you don't work, and like you just get to go back to, like that, this is the heart of God in Sabbath. Every seven days, I'm gonna give you a day to just enjoy. Every seven years, I'm gonna give you a year to just breathe, and every seven times seven years, I'm gonna give you the year of Jubilee. That's what they titled it. The year of jubilee, not the year of burdensome because I have to follow the Sabbath. The year of jubilee, of joy, of celebration. We have instituted into creation and given at Sinai a beautiful gift of rest in Sabbath. Chapter one was creation. Chapter two was law. Chapter three, exile. As the Israelites got into the land and became prosperous and rich and wealthy, they forgot God as always happens when you get prosperous and rich and wealthy. And so they started to break the Sabbath. In Amos chapter eight, there's actually a conversation between two people and one guy's talking to another and he says, hey, when is Sabbath gonna be over? Because I want to get back to work. Literally, it says that in Amos eight. And, and it says, I, he, he, talk, he keeps going, he's like, I found a way to like lower um, uh, the cost of labor so I don't have to pay my employees as much and actually increase the price of the product this much and so by doing this in a year's time I'll have made this much money and what he's talking about is he can't wait for Sabbath to be over so that he can just make more money. In Ezekiel 20 which is the primary passage that talks about this the Lord speaks directly to the elders of Israel and he tells them that one of the primary reasons they went into exile one of, not the only, but one of the primary reasons they went into exile was because they broke the Sabbath. If you remember Israel, they get into the land, right, and they kick out all the bad guys, and then there's the time of the judges, and then they get a king, and it's Saul and David and Solomon, and then the nation splits, and then we're doing a real quick overview here. And then a, a, years later, after sin and rebellion and murder and breaking the Sabbath, the Assyrian Empire, they come in and they exile the northern kingdom, and then Babylon the great big bad Babylon. They come in and they wipe out the southern kingdom and they just scatter them across the world. And Ezekiel is actually in Babylon right now and he's getting these visions and he's writing and he said that one of the primary reasons that they went into exile in the first place was because they broke the Sabbath. Now there were a lot of reasons, right? Idolatry, sacrificing children, literally and figuratively, gluttony, success and wealth, wealth disparity, right? Where the rich became richer and the poor became poorer. The ignoring and turning a blind eye uh, to the outsourcing of slavery, the oppression of orphans and widows, creating a city where they pretend like nothing is wrong and they can live their peaceful, happy lives when all around them is misery and chaos and oppression and violence. I'm just reading the prophets, by the way. And so all of those reasons were reasons why they went to exile. But Ezekiel 20 talks about one of the primary reasons is because they broke the Sabbath. It talks about the Sabbath as a sign between God and between Israel. And God says this, I have given them my Sabbath. Do you hear that language? Given. Given them my Sabbath. Not required it, not put this obligation around them. I have given them my Sabbath to serve as a sign between me and them so that they may know that I am the Lord who makes them holy. The purpose of the Sabbath, according to Ezekiel 20, is to make God's people holy and to remind them that he is the Lord. 
and Ezekiel and other prophets, in Ezekiel and other prophets, the desecration of the Sabbath, the breaking of the Sabbath, the cursing of what God has blessed and the profaning of what God has consecrated is what sent them into exile. And years and years later, they come back from exile, right? We, uh, if you were here a couple years ago, we did Ezra and Nehemiah. And uh, eventually Babylon fell and Persia took over and then they send the Israelites back. And they're like, you can go back. You'll still be under our arm and you'll still pay us taxes, but you can go back. And Ezra and Nehemiah led the way in this. And what was one of the first things that they established? Sabbath. One of the first things they established when they got back home was Sabbath. Why? Because Ezra and Nehemiah, they read Ezekiel. They read Isaiah, they read Jeremiah, they read the Torah, the the law, they read creation, and they knew how important Sabbath was. And they didn't want to mess it up again. They didn't want to go back into exile because they, they, they missed the Sabbath. And that posture right there, that posture eventually evolved over time, over a few hundred years, and it led to the Pharisees. When I was growing up, I kind of thought that, uh, I thought that the Pharisees were just like blatantly legalistic and honestly kind of dumb. Like I was like, well, why, why are you always arguing with Jesus? Like you know you're wrong and you know that Jesus is right, so like why, what are you doing? But the, the more I, I read the scriptures, the more I, I see that they actually have, they're, they're very passionate and they care deeply they cared very deeply about the word of God. So I, I was thinking about it like this. Say this is Sabbath, whatever this is, this point or something, I don't know. This is Sabbath. This is God's heart in Sabbath, right? Sabbath is for us to enjoy God, to stop what we're doing and enjoy God, right? If you're a Pharisee, you remember the story of Ezekiel and the prophets in exile, and you remember that one of the reasons why they got into exile in the first place is because they broke the Sabbath, and the tradition of Ezra and Nehemiah, you don't want to break that Sabbath, so what is a way that you can avoid breaking the Sabbath? Setting up a fence all the way over here to kind of guard, guard the Sabbath, right? Does this make sense? So what they did over a couple hundred years is they made hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of additional laws to get, to just to make sure that you don't get close to breaking the Sabbath. Hey, we don't want to break the Sabbath, right? Do you, do you feel that, like, the sacredness they almost have for the Sabbath. Like that, it's, it's a very noble thing. Obviously, they completely missed the point, but what they did is the Pharisees eventually did this to the point where they said you can't, uh, there were actually a certain set, a number of paces that you could take on a Sabbath way before steps were a thing, right? They were like, you can only have a certain amount of steps on a Sabbath because one more than that and you're working and you, you, know, you can't do that. They actually had a, a law uh, uh, or a law where you couldn't, um, pull a bench out or a seat out or something like that or even a, a gate because it could, this is ridiculous. Sorry, I don't mean to say that. This, it could put a, like a divot in the ground and that was considered plowing and that was considered farming and you weren't allowed to plow or farm. I mean, this is how serious it got. So by the time of Jesus, Jesus gets on the scene and you feel that right? Here's the Sabbath. We don't want to break it, so what we're going to do is we're going to put this fence all the way around, but what ended up happening is that it turned into this heavy burden, this heavy burden, where you were constantly looking over your shoulder. Am I doing this right? Am I, oh, I don't want the Pharisees to come at me. I, I don't know what I'm doing, and this yoke that just, just was, was not freeing at all. Chapter one, creation. Chapter two, law. Chapter three, exile. Chapter four, Jesus. This is the world that Jesus entered into. 
And in Matthew 5, Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish the law, but I came to fulfill it. And he gives a list of things. I didn't, uh, you've heard that it was said, don't murder. I didn't abolish that. Still don't murder, but also the heart of the law is anger. What's going on in your heart? What's going on with your broken relationships? I didn't come to abolish the law, but fulfill. Adultery. Uh, you have heard that it says don't commit adultery. That's good. I'm not abolishing that. Still don't commit adultery. But beyond that, the heart of that law is lust. Don't, don't let your eyes wander. Don't let your thoughts wander. Don't let your heart wander. In the same way, Jesus looks at Sabbath. And in Matthew chapter 12, we see this story of Jesus not abolishing the Sabbath. He didn't abolish the Sabbath, but he fulfilled it. He got rid of all of the fences all the way around it and all the rules and legalism, and he went to the heart of it. So much so that Jesus' disciples, and this is the text, this is our text for today, they're walking around and they're picking grains of, uh, uh, heads of grain and they're eating them because they're hungry, I don't know. And the Pharisees are like, Jesus, your disciples are doing this. And he's like, guys, remember in 1 Samuel 21 when, 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 when David was super, super hungry and he ate the bread that you're not supposed to eat? Why? Because a human life is far more important than a bunch of little rules. He says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I am the Lord of the Sabbath. Notice what he did not say. He said, well, the Sabbath is done. We don't have to worry about that anymore. The second story is a man with a withered hand. And in order to accuse him, in order to accuse him, the Pharisees go to him and they say, is it lawful to do good I'm sorry, to heal on the Sabbath. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And notice Jesus' response. He says, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Jesus understood the heart of it, that it is for our benefit. In Mark, actually, Jesus says, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Do you hear Jesus' heart in this? The second we p- try to put legalism all over it, we do the how-tos or we do this, we are creating a heavy, heavy burden and a hard yoke that we have to follow. But Jesus doesn't want that at all. Obviously, the Sabbath is for us, for humanity, a gift of rest and enjoyment in life. And then, of course, that affects everyone, especially the weak and the helpless and the sick. Jesus didn't abolish the Sabbath. He's the Lord of it. He knows what it f- it's for, and he is actually the point of it. Jesus brings us back to the heart, of the, Matthew, the, the heart of the matter. And we see the end of the matter in chapter five, new creation. Chapter five, new creation. We don't have time to get there, but Revelation is all about this, and there's, um, there's uh, portions of this in Matthew 25 as well that talk about this. But on the day when Jesus returns, right, when heaven and earth are reunited once and for all, what is that day going to look like? It's gonna look like every wrong is made right. It's gonna look like vindication for those who are hurting and oppressed. It's gonna look like freedom. Oh, a freedom of your soul and of your body that you can't even begin to imagine. It's gonna look like peace. Peace. That, that, that it no longer surpasses understanding, but it becomes an understanding. It's gonna look like joy, excitement. It's gonna look like endless love where nobody's thinking about, what, about how to manipulate situations for their own good, but they're actually selflessly giving everybody. Can you imagine a people, just everybody, just selflessly giving to everybody else so that nobody's in need? And it's gonna be 
an eternal day of rest. It's gonna be an eternal Sabbath, not without work, because work is good. It's gonna be an eternal Sabbath where we are just, that, that low-grade spinning of the wheels that you feel in your heart and your mind on a daily basis, gone. That constant air over your heads of not having enough time to get done what you need to get done, gone. That constant anxiety of like, what if this happens, or what if that happens, or what if this happens, or I need to, 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 gone. That's the day that we look forward to. And that's the day that we have an opportunity to enter into every single week. The kingdom of heaven is not yet here, but it is, not yet here fully, but it is here partially. And see, what I've noticed from the Pharisees is that sometimes the Pharisees are more afraid of sin than they are legalism. And I oftentimes have the opposite problem where I'm more afraid of legalism than I am sin. And so at this point, you could say, yeah, well, Sabbath is just a state of being. Sabbath is a mindset. It's something that I, I'll do when I get to heaven. And yes, that's true. Jesus actually never commands us to follow or observe the Sabbath, but he gives it to us as a gift. How are you going to steward it? Jesus also never commands us to read our Bibles, but he gives it to us as a gift. Jesus also never commands us to go to church, but he gives it to us as a gift. So far greater than the questions of how or ought or should or should not or arguments in this question is this. Will you come to Jesus and receive his gift of rest? Will we refuse the exhaustion and the weariness and the endless work that this empire demands? Will we refuse the hard yoke and the heavy burden that the Pharisees force on us? How will we handle this gift? What would, your li- what would our lives look like, actually? What would our lives look like if we actually took Jesus up on, this, on his offer? If we actually said, okay, Jesus, I actually believe that you can give me rest for my soul, for my soul, like the very core of my being rest. What if we actually took Jesus, Jesus up on that offer? What if we actually believed that he was Lord of the Sabbath and that the Sabbath is a good thing? What would our lives look like if we were a people marked by rest that's only found in Jesus? How different would we look? There is a deep satisfaction and a rest that only comes from following him. So God's heart for us in the Sabbath is not burden, it's not a hard yoke, it's a gift. And it's ours to receive or ours to refuse. Let's pray. Thanks again for listening and we pray this was a blessing to you. If you have any questions or comments about what you heard, our email is info at com, or you can find us on social media at Gospel. Mm-hmm.